Well, as we get into the book of John, I was thinking about my daughter Lucy. Um, many of you know Lucy. Lucy is a, loves art. She's actually in Miss Laura's art class. Laura Crimmel, um, before she was, got sick, she had an art class on Monday afternoons, and Lucy was in that, looked forward to it, loves that class. In fact, Lucy has a little bag of art supplies that she got for Christmas, and she takes it with her everywhere. And if we've ever been over to your house, I know like, like my in-laws, like Dave and Tina, do, do you have any paper? You know, she's always asking people for paper because she runs out so quickly. You know, she goes to my parents' house, do you have any paper? I need paper. And, and we've run out. I had to go to Target the other day to get more print paper. I ended up buying like the ultra-thick value pack because I know Lucy would just grab a whole handful of that because she just loves her crayons, her colored pencils. She loves to draw. And it kind of made me think, you know, she, one day she said, Dad, I'm just, a, I'm just a coloring girl. I'm just, well, that's a good way to define yourself. I'm just a, just a coloring girl. Like, all right. Then, you know, at least you, you got, you're building up that sense of self-identity. Um, but it made me think of something. In the book of John, you know, we've been talking so much about um, Genesis and Exodus and how much John goes back to these. And, and it's almost as if John has a bag of art supplies and and his bag of art supplies, like one box says Genesis, one box says Exodus, and he's writing the book of John, and he pulls out Genesis, and he starts coloring, and he pulls out Exodus, and he starts coloring. And that's sort of the book of John, is that he just continues telling that same story of the Torah over and over and over again to help us understand that Jesus redeems it all. And so if you're with us this morning, we're going to be jumping into chapter 19, right in smack dab in the middle, verse 17. Um, but... You know, so, so find your place there. I want to talk about that for a second. John is always trying to help us to understand that Jesus is the new, greater Adam. He's redeeming Adam. That Jesus is the new and greater Moses. Moses had his faults. Moses was great. He had his faults, but Jesus was the new and greater Moses. And when you start looking through the book of John, you always see John coloring with these Genesis and Exodus crayons. And as we go through it, I, I hope you're going to see it even more today. And you always get John on two levels. We talked about this in the beginning. That's why I handed out chopsticks to all of you, because um, if you weren't here, you missed a free pair of chopsticks, by the way, when we, when we started the book of John, because you need to eat the book of John on two levels. There's always the, the one, like, what actually happened, what physically happened, and then the second level is, like, there's this ultra meaning to it all. And so we're going to look at John on both of these levels. One is that he's actually, Jesus is actually dying on the cross, but two is that he's actually doing something quite profound, and Jesus is in control of that situation. So let me give us a quick recap, and then we're going to jump into verse 17 here. So all the way back a few weeks ago, we, we started in chapter 18. We found Jesus in this garden. Unmistakably, John is trying to tell us, he's coloring with the book, the crayons of Genesis, and he's trying to tell us that this is like the same kind of garden as the Garden of Eden. That Jesus is back in the garden, and that guess what? Satan entered Judas, just like the serpent entered the garden. And they came, and they took Jesus away, and he stood firm. And he said, here I am. And, and either the power of his voice, that they were so shocked, I don't know what, the, the garden back. It showed Jesus totally in control of the situation. Jesus is in the garden, and he's taken to... To, to Caiaphas's house, the high priest, and he's questioned, and, and he's questioned incorrectly, and he's slapped, and, and, and he's just treated horribly. And, and some of his disciples begin to betray him, and, and especially Peter. We hear the story of Peter coming through real loudly, and as Peter denies him three times. One of the lead 
disciples, the man go on and be an apostle, it, he denies him three times. What would we do in that situation? And then he's given over to Pilate, and Pilate keeps saying three times, he keeps saying, I find no fault in him. And it's not just that he was not guilty, but remember we talked about the Passover lamb and that they had to find no fault in the Passover lamb, that the Passover lamb had to be perfect. And so there was sort of this great double meaning, this prophetic thing that Pilate was saying. There's no fault in Jesus. And of course, he doesn't do anything. He's guiltless. And yet, he goes to the throne. And Pilate stands up and says, here is the man. And I love that. Because Pilate misunderstands who's right in front of him. Here's the man. Because John makes clear all through his gospel that Jesus is a man, but he's more than a man. He's the Word of God, the pre-existent one who was there with God in the beginning of creation. But he says these great words, here's the man. And it's Jesus. And remember from last week, not only did they dress him as king, but they kind of mistakenly dressed him as the high priest as well. And that will come into today and what I want you to see. So we're going to start the story here, verse 17. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place... He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. We're going to pause here for a second. Because remember, John colors with these crayons of Genesis and Exodus. And so what do we think of when we see Jesus carrying his own cross? Remember Abraham and Isaac, there's this story where God says, I want you to go sacrifice your one and only son. We've talked about that in really great depth here before. Nice. Sorry. That's okay. Don't worry about it. I don't know why I'd comment on that. I should never, like, comment on things that happen in the audience. It's like public speaking 101. I'm just terrible at that. So, anyways, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, uh, to make anybody embarrassed with that. All right. Anyways, um, we'll, let's just rewind. <laughs> Thank you. Redemption goes for me, too. Okay. We're going to pause here for a second because where else do we see this happening? We see this in Abraham and Isaac, right? God says to Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice your, your only son. And then what he does is he takes his bundle of that this for the altar that they're going to literally burn his son up on. And he puts it on his shoulders and he walks him out to this mountain, which happens, tradition tells us, is the same place where Jesus is going. In Genesis 22, verse 6, it says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. I think there's um, the way to look at the passion narrative in the book of John is that this is all orchestrated by Jesus. Many of us look at this and go, yeah, this is what they, they did to him, but I think Jesus orchestrated this whole thing. Because I don't think he's just trying to give us good theology, but I think he's trying to show us who he is. He's the God from the very beginning. He's the God who, who was there with Abraham and Isaac. He's the one who was there. Abraham was about to kill his only son in obedience to God, and God provided a substitute. A substitute. It's where we get this idea of substitutionary atonement, that something dies in your place. So, so Isaac is literally about to die, but a substitute offering came. It was a ram caught in this thicket. 
And what do you think Jesus is trying to share with the people, with the Jews who are there, with the Gentiles who are there, with the wood on his shoulders? I'm your great substitute. I am dying in your place. I mean, if you've been reading in the community Bible experience with us, you've been in the the book of Romans, you you see verses like the wages of sin are death. What we all deserve is death. But, But Jesus took that on. This is what's going on here. By Jesus carrying this cross. Jesus is trying to show the Jews there, look, I am your high priest. I will carry my own cross. And even though you are killing me, I will lay down my life for you. Let's jump down to verse 19. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. I like This is kind of like Pilate's comeback to the Jews because he was very upset with them for, for forcing his hand to kill Jesus. One of the early... Um, historians, Josephus, we've, we, we hear from this guy's name every now and then it comes up. He was a guy who was actually there. He was captured by the Romans, and he wrote this whole history of what happened that's outside the Bible. And so we have this great extra history that, that's outside the Bible to confirm what really happened in the Bible. Josephus writes about this a little bit, but one of the things that he talks about is crucifixion. He said, it's one of the most wretched and watched of deaths. It was a very public execution, a very public death. Is a heavily watched event, even though the wretchedness of it was humongous. It was awful. People came out to see these things. So I want to ask you to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples that day. The man that you abandoned everything for, you've given up three years to follow him. Three years of your life. And you're thinking about the things that Jesus might have said during those three years as you see him hanging on that cross. You're thinking about some of these things. Maybe, maybe what has gone through your head, because this is literally the fulfillment of a few things that he said. John 3, verses 14 through 15. Just as Moses has lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. He kept saying stuff like this. And, and then in, in chapter 12, which we're going to get to in a couple weeks from now, because it's, it's um, the triumphal entry. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus kept saying things like this. This is literally the moment where Jesus is lifted up. And maybe they're thinking, whoa, that's what Jesus was trying to say. When I am lifted up. He was literally lifted up in a high place over all the people with a sign saying that he was the king. Just days before, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, and we're going to get to on on Palm Sunday, people were shouting that this man is the king. And now he is lifted up above them all with a sign saying that he is the king. And the same man is beaten, bloody, dressed like a king and lifted up. And the world changes because of this moment. Something started happening in the hearts of people. God was doing something at this very moment. But first, let's see what happens next. Verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, 
to each, to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was made without seam, woven from the top into one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, it and whose, shall, whose it shall be. Um, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. We're going to come back to this in a moment. Um, actually, this is, the, this is the whole gospel, in my opinion. The soldiers dividing the garments. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. So just let me, allow me skip over that for a minute, because we're going to come right back to that. Let's keep going. Verse 25. Now there stood by the cross Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Now there's something I want us to understand in this because I think it's very important for the way that we do church. Mary was not the biological mother of John, the disciple whom... Jesus loved. That's how John referred to himself, kind of egotistical, right? You're like writing the gospel and like, and the disciple that Jesus loved, me. No, <laughs> I don't think it was egotistical. I'm just joking there. But um, Mary, he's, he's on the cross. He is dying. And he, and he says, behold your son. This, this is now your, your son. And behold your mother. Take care. Take care of each other. There's this, Jesus wasn't mistaken, these two are not blood-related. They're not brother and sister, mother and daughter. They're, they're not biologically related at all. Jesus was not mistaken. He knew that. But Jesus, being the author of the gospel, knew that something was happening in his blood at that moment where the two shall become family members. These two signify the church. And that in his blood, we are literally united as family. That Jesus is creating new family in his followers. That we are all held together somehow in his blood. Jesus is creating this brand new ethic on the cross. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, so the blood brings us near to Christ. In Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, and in, in him all things are held together. There's these verses, and we can go on and on and on, that talk about uh, essentially, Jesus holds us all together. So, so John and Mary, and by the church tradition, he said, John, look after my mom. Church tradition tells us that Mary went with John wherever he went, and that even in, as he pastored the church in Ephesus, when he's writing the book of Revelation, all that stuff, Mary was there. Well, probably not when he's writing the book of Revelation. She was passed on by then. But essentially, Mary was there. Imagine Christmas Eve, Mary standing up to give testimony to what happened. That's pretty incredible. But essentially, he's creating this brand new ethic. Jesus cares for his mother and wants her to be cared for, but it's more than that. It's more than that. He's saying, you are now my family. You are now family to each other because of my blood. My blood holds all these things together. You are now family. This is why it's so important as a church that we have unity. This is why it's so important that we get to know each other and form deep relationships here. Because we are literally considered family in God's eyes. 
Not just you guys, too, but the people who go to CCV, the people who go to faith, the people who go to this church over here, the church down there, your friends that go to other churches, because we're all, we're not the church, we're part of the larger church. And that you're all family together. This is why it's so important that that as Christians, we, we begin to agree on some things that are biblically based and not yell and shout at each other because people go, oh, I don't even want to go to church like that. Why do I even want to be a part of those people? In, in the book of Romans, um, it, it's talked about, I, I'm sorry, not the book of Romans, in the book of Matthew, they talk about, Jesus says to the Pharisees, people are blaspheming the name of God because of you. Why? Because they bickered and fought. It didn't have any unity. And people said, why would I ever want to be part of religion like that? Why would I ever want to follow God? His, his people, you know, they, oh. I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. This is why unity is so important, because the world sees and is literally part of our evangelism to the world. That we love each other. And we can have differences, absolutely. There's a broad spectrum of differences uh, across Christianity. Theologically, um, ethically, there's a huge, broad form of differences. But we have to still love each other and distribute and show real tolerance for one another. Not the false tolerance that this world talks about where you have to accept people blindly. It means that you might disagree with them, but you love them. That's what the traditional meaning of tolerance is. So I'm sorry if that ruins anything for you all. I kind of lost my... There we go. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished and the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it in his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Although Jesus may have been thirsty and probably was because of the rigors the body goes through during crucifixion. He did not necessarily say, I thirst, because he was just baking in the sun that day. He is fulfilling scripture. He is showing this very Jewish audience that he is in control of this situation. That not only is he the protagonist, he's the director of this situation. Psalm 69, 21 says, They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. For my thirst. And then it says they used hyssop to give him a drink. And this is very important. One of the things um, that I always try and bring across is that Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture. That, that we ought to look back and say, well, where was this first used and why? Well, this whole idea of hyssop is first used in the Bible in the book of Exodus. See, John's taking out Lucy's coloring bag and grabbing the coloring crayons of Exodus, and he's, he's just drawn away. And it says this in Exodus 12, verse uh, 22. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood of the basin and put some of the blood on the top of both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out the door of your house until morning. That was the first Passover meal. What is happening? What is the ceremony that is going on where Jesus is on the cross? Does anybody know? I gave you the answer. It's Passover. That's right. It's Passover. Do you think it's any mistake that this hyssop is used? I don't think so. I don't think it's any coincidence that during the very first Passover, God wanted this plant to be used. And now at the time of Jesus' death, again, it is used. I think 
that Jesus wants us to see that he really is the Passover lamb. And just as that hyssop was used to paint the doorpost red, Jesus is now painting a new doorpost red. Because when that doorpost is painted red, it means that you're covered by the blood of the lamb. And now Jesus paints this new doorpost red, but it's the doorpost of the universe. It's a doorpost that we all get to walk through. It's a doorpost that, that invites us. Sadly, people won't walk through that because it's too tough. Because they've got to give up too much because they don't think it's fun because it's not about them. Sadly, people won't want to walk through that door. But I think what Jesus is trying to do here now on the cross is saying, this is the new doorpost of the universe. Before you had the Passover, the doorpost on your house, painted with hyssop, painted with blood, and now I am painting a new doorpost over the universe that I want you to walk through in order to have true life. The cross is the new kind of door that you have to walk through to be saved. And to see, the, and, and you see that hyssop makes it into the story of the cross and the door be, because Jesus' blood is even being smeared on that as, there, as this is happening. So if you want to be saved, if you want brand new life, there, there's one door. We look in all sorts of places. And I know this sounds exclusionary, and I know that this sounds like bigoted to the world today, but there's one door. There's one door. There's only one way in which you could be saved, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I know, like I said, to our world that sounds intolerant. But I'll say this, I've said it before, and I'll continue to say it again and again. Jesus offers something that nobody else offers. You can look through all the religions of the world. Nobody offers forgiveness for their sins that is known and certain by their paying in their own blood. It's not arrogant. Jesus offers something that no one else does, that no one else could even begin to. So there's the door. So many times in life we're searching for things that only God can provide an answer for. And then Jesus said, it is finished. And, and I want you to get this. He gave up his spirit. He gave it. He gave it. They didn't break his legs, and we're going to go on to that in a minute. They didn't give you know, one fatal blow to the head. Jesus willfully died. No one took his life. He gave it. Let's look down in verse uh, 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should, <coughs> excuse me, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was the high day, the Jews asked Pilate that the legs might be broken and they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs on the first and the first and of the other who were crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and this testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, and the scripture should be fulfilled. Not, none of his bones shall be broken. And again, other scriptures say that they, took, they, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, remember him? And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus at night, 
also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices, as the custom of the Jews was to bury. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one, which no one had been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. It says that Jesus' bones were not broken. So why is that important? I think that's very significant to this story. They broke his leg. They broke the legs of the people of the cross because it meant a faster death. Their legs were supporting them, and so they, you know, they're on the cross, and they would fall down, and essentially they would suffocate within the matter of a couple of moments, a couple of minutes. And so that way, they could finish what they were doing. They could take the bodies down. They could, they could finally be done. It, it was actually as harsh and horrible as this sounds. It was kind of an act of mercy to take these people out of their suffering. Um, so it's hard to break a person's leg, right? This is hard work. So when they come to Jesus and find out that he's actually dead already, they go, oh man, we don't have to break their legs. It's actually easy to break somebody's legs if they're a four-year-old child. I know because I actually broke my daughter's leg once, uh, but that's a different story. When you're a full-grown man, it's hard to break a leg. Trampoline, half the fault was the trampoline, Okay. You go to the ER and they're like, oh, you're a trampoline player? Yeah, we get this like twice a day. So anyways, so half the fault was a trampoline. Anyway, she, she still tells me, Dad, you broke my leg. Remember that? I'm like, yeah, 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 I know. I know. All right, so anyways, why is this significant that they did not break Jesus' legs? One, he was already dead. And two, again, there has to be no mistake that Jesus is the Passover lamb. There's no mistake about this. We have to look at the text of the Passover again. Uh, Exodus uh, 12, verse 46. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. So the idea of the Passover lamb, you weren't even allowed to break the bones of the Passover lamb. Why? Because it still had to be perfect even in death. It had to be the perfect sacrifice. You couldn't have anything broken. You couldn't have anything blemished. It had to be perfect. And now Jesus is standing there, and, and they decide not to break his legs. It's prophetic. You may notice that when I give communion, and it, this is just a little pastor pet peeve of mine, because I, I, whenever I'm on vacation, I try and go to a, another church if I'm not like traveling that day. I always try and go to another church to see how they do it. Uh, one time I heard a, a pastor say, this is the, the body of Jesus broken for you. And this is sort of a pet peeve of mine. I, I know it's probably ridiculous because you could, you could say that. Technically, it's wrong. Um, you shouldn't say that. This is the body of Jesus who was given for you because Jesus was never broken in accordance with the whole Passover lamb deal. Jesus was never broken. He was given for you. Sure, you got to break the bread, and I understand. But Jesus' body was given for you. So they didn't break his legs. And it just should remind all the people, especially the Jews standing there, like, wow, Passover, Jesus, Passover lamb. They didn't break it. They used hyssop. They didn't break his legs. Holy cow, what are we doing? They stabbed him, and blood and water sprayed out and covered the guards. Fun picture. I've got a great drawing of that. I'm joking. We don't. Um, <laughs> sometimes the Bible can get kind of gross, right? Especially like you go to the old parts of Genesis and they're talking about like pulling the innards out of animals. and uh, You know, back in those days when you hunted a lot, that wouldn't have been that gross, just so you know. 
But now in our 21st century sanitary world, this is obviously gross. So why is this important? See, every ounce of Jesus' death preaches the gospel. Every ounce of it. Every ounce of it. So they pierce Jesus on the side. And it's sort of this flashback. John, again, is coloring with the crayons of the Old Testament. And, and it's sort of this flashback to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20 through 23, they're talking about the law. The Ten Commandments come down. And, 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 and I'm sorry, Moses, not John. Moses is describing the Ten Commandments, and he's giving the people the law. And then they go to ratify the Ten Commandments. They ratify the law, and they create a new covenant between God and his people. And what does the priest do? He takes the blood of the, of the heifer, and he sprinkles it all over the people. That's what he does to ratify a new covenant. Hebrews 9, 19 talks about this. It says, when Moses had proclaimed every command of the law of the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, hyssop, again, and sprinkled it on the scroll and all over the people. We would have been like, ew, does anybody know what that calf had? Because I need to, we may have hand sanitizer. That's disgusting. But then they didn't know about blood-borne pathogens, and they wouldn't have been too worried about this, right? Blood was a normal part of their lives. In, in Exodus 24, it says, this is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. I mean, essentially, the, pre, the high priest, which Jesus is dressed as king and high priest, is standing there, and his blood and water comes out and sprays over the people. I, I, do, I yes, picture one but two it's a beautiful picture of jesus ratifying this new covenant in his blood almost to echo moses's words moses's words was this is the blood of the covenant where have we heard that before when jesus gives communion that third cup of the seder meal which jesus would have used there's this full seder meal by the way this wasn't a uh, Seder is, is the meal before Passover, very uh, important in the Jewish tradition. Many people don't realize this, but the third cup of the Seder meal is the cup of redemption. And Jesus passes it out and says the words of Moses, this is the blood of the covenant. And they take it and drink it. And then he's on the cross and he, he's stabbed with the spear and, and blood and water cover these soldiers. Almost the same, my blood will cover you. Wow. See, not only is Jesus the perfect sacrifice, but his blood covers us in a literal way. Almost again to color with these crayons of Exodus. His blood is sprinkled on his people to show them that they are covered by his blood. But I want to go to, in, I think, an even more important place. In chapters 18 and 19 of John, um, everyone other than Jesus experiences fear. And like I've said throughout this message today, that Jesus orchestrates his own crucifixion. Absolutely. He's in charge. When you begin to look at it, it through these lenses, Pilate says, do you not know I have power to crucify you? And what does Jesus respond? You would have no power if it weren't given to you from above. Whoa. Jesus is asked questions and he stays silent. Pilate is struck in with fear, and Jesus has no fear. Like I said, the, the people come after him, the, the guards, and, and, and they kind of expect him to hide, but he stands up firm, and they fall backwards in the garden. The high priests are talked about throughout the Gospel of John as literally afraid of their own people, but who has no fear in this situation? It's Jesus. 
Jesus stands firm. When you really look at these two chapters, chapter 18 and 19, you'll notice that Jesus was in full control. This week I took chapters 18 and 19 and laid them all out, and I looked where Jesus was in control versus who else was in control. And it's, it's amazing the way it's all written out. It, fun extra credit that doesn't mean anything. Go home and read chapters 18 and 19 again, and, and just try and notice those things. Who was in control? Who wasn't in control? Jesus is in absolute control of this situation. Fear was driving them. Fear was driving Pilate. So many times we allow whatever's inside us to control us, like fear. We allow that to control us. And whatever's inside of you can become another God. Literally, fear can become another God to you. When I was a youth pastor, we used to, and we used to joke around about how um, drama had become the identity of, the, there was a couple particular teenagers, and we were like, yeah, without drama, they're just like, what do we do? You know, you should break up with somebody because we need more drama in our lives. How are we gonna how are we gonna deal with this in our lives? And, and it was just kind of the cycle of being a youth pastor. We're like, man, nothing happened for a week. Something's about to happen. Yep, they need a drama. There it is. You know, because when you have that inside, it begins to control you. You begin to build an identity on it. And I think that's what Pilate he reacted so much out of fear, and Caiaphas so much out of fear. All of his actions were out of fear. See, John would even write later, 1 John 4, 8, he said, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. See, I, I would submit to you that, that even though Jesus did agonize in the garden, I don't think he was afraid when he went to the cross because he knew exactly what was happening. I almost wonder if he was reflecting on the fact that Jesus' own perfect love did not allow him to have fear on the cross. So I know we get afraid sometimes that we don't have perfect love all the time, but the good news is that we could borrow his. So today, one of the things I want to end on, and again, I think this is the whole gospel, where Jesus is closed, because we didn't cover this yet today. And you may have read this before and just sort of passed over it, but I I think this is one of the most intense, awesome pieces of, of scripture in this whole thing, because it has to do with you and me. Let me read it again. Chapter 19, verses 23 through 24. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And now they said, uh, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose shall it be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which it says, they divided my garments among them, and for my my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. So not only was this a fulfillment of Psalm 22, but I think more than anything, this is a great message of the cross. Clothes are very highly symbolic of, in the Bible. And when you look back at the very first situation, again here, I think John has taken out his Genesis 3 crayons, and he's just, just going to town with this text. Genesis 3, verses 9 and 10, But the Lord called to them, Where are you? The man answered, he said, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the conversation kind of goes on, who told you you were naked? How did you know you were naked? And they knew this, of course, because their eyes were open and they were sick. The very first atonement in the Bible, the very first time the word is used in the Old Testament is the covering of Adam and Eve with the clothes by God. 
that God literally had to kill an animal, sew clothing together, and put it on Adam and Eve, and so they were covered by the blood. You get that? God put on clothes on his kids. He had to cover their sin. He had to atone for them. So God eventually makes clothes for Adam and Eve out of animal skins, literally the blood, all that stuff. And now the reverse is happening. Now Jesus is on the cross, probably not naked. He probably had a little, you know, deal around, um, around himself. Um, so he's probably not totally naked, but essentially in the Jewish mind, he's naked. Because you don't do that in public. You don't have your shirt off. You don't have your tunic off. You don't have your cloak off. You don't have that in public. And literally, the, the Gentile soldiers who are cruci- who've crucified him, who have nailed his hands to the cross, are gambling for his clothes. So the question is, who's going to get Jesus? And the answer is all of us. We all get them. In the Old Testament, there was this metaphor of putting on clothes and take, and uh, righteousness, clothes of righteousness. In other words, the covering of God is what makes you righteous. Job 29, 14, I put on righteousness as my clothing, justice as my robe and my turban. And the New Testament authors will use this metaphor over and over and over again. Romans 13, 14, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Over and over and over again. I mean, these are just two examples. If you're with us in the community Bible experience, just notice, notice how many times it says, put on the clothing of Jesus. Put on the clothing of Jesus. I think the soldiers gambling for the clothes of Jesus is something that we may have lost over the years or just skipped through, but we've got to dwell on it for a minute because it's really important. Because what I think is going on here is that this message is getting played out so powerfully that even the people who nailed Jesus to the cross can exchange their filthy rags for his clothes. You and me who've screwed up when it doesn't matter what you've done, that Jesus can actually take his clothes and give them to you and say, put on the clothes of righteousness. My buddy Finney, who's, who's come here and preached a number of times, and he's an evangelist, he goes to India, back to his hometown, and, and he talks with people who, who um, are all about karma. And, and if you understand karma, it's, it's, it's not a Christian thing, by the way. Not even remotely. It has to do with reincarnation and all that stuff. We say it's become a cultural word. Um, but when the deep understanding of it is not even remotely a, a, a Christian um, thinking or term. And, and so what he b- begins to do is he begins to share with them the gospel using this word karma. Because the idea in, in these Indian religions and Hinduism and all this stuff is that you have to build better karma over and over and over again, reincarnated through lives over and over and over again until you're finally better. But what he says is this. He says, Jesus died on the cross so that he can, he's got perfect karma. So he could take your karma and exchange it with you. He will take yours away and give you his so that you could have these clothes of righteousness. Over and over and over again, God calls us to holiness in the scriptures. All the way through Romans, all the way through Ephesians, I mean, over and over and over again, put on the clothes of Christ. And that is literally what is happening with these soldiers. They're wearing Jesus' clothes. And I wonder if he just kind of looked down and smiled. What humanity is going to be like? All of you get the opportunity to take off whatever it is you've done, whatever it is, the, the, the sin, the messed up stuff, whatever that is, 
And all of you have the opportunity to wear my garment that's never been torn, my garment that's never been sewn. All of you have the opportunity to put on my righteousness. As we um, close today, I hope you've seen the cross in a new way. This is so important in your walk with God to look at the cross and to see all that Jesus did for you, that he orchestrated that so that you could see how much he loves you. So that you could see that as a brand new door. Maybe you're here today and you've never walked through that door. Maybe you're here today and you, you've never accepted Jesus. You've looked at Jesus on the cross, but you've said, that's ah, not for me. I'm here to tell you today that it is for you. That Jesus does want you to walk through that door. He does want to have a relationship with you. Maybe you're thinking, with the things I've done, he's like, yeah, that's why I gave my clothes away. So that you could have a fresh set. So that you could start over. But, but Jesus, you don't understand. He does. He gets it. He was crucified. The blood was spilled everywhere for you. Maybe you're here today and, and one, you need to start a brand new relationship with Jesus. You simply need to confess. It, the, I mean, the Bible literally says repent and believe. Repent means change your mind. God, I, I didn't think of you as the Messiah. Now I see you as the Messiah. And believe. Begin to walk that way. Believe is an action. Maybe you're here today and you simply need to renew that. You, you've known that forever. Like, you've known that Jesus is the Messiah. You've known that he gives you clothes of righteousness, but you've grown accustomed to your own clothes, and you sort of keep some of that sin in that pocket and some of that sin in this pocket, and if no one knows about it, it's okay. But maybe Jesus wants to exchange, give you a fresh set of clothes today. Give you a fresh garment. As the band comes forward, I want to just ask you to pray right where you're at. And just to connect with God right where you're at. Maybe you want to come to the front and pray. That's, if that's you, great. We'll come pray with you. Maybe you want to stay right where you're at and pray. Jesus wants you to have a brand new life in his blood. He gives you a brand new door to walk through, and he wants to give you brand new clothes. Let's pray. Jesus. There are not words enough to begin to thank you for what you've done on the cross. So we will simply say thank you. We will simply say thank you, God. We do not deserve. We don't deserve it. God, yet you gave it freely. You gave your life freely. You weren't broken, but you gave it. So Lord, us to live in that promise. God, some of us here today, and we need to start over, start fresh. We need to declare that you are the Messiah, and we are not. So many times we live like our own Messiah, that we are in charge, that we could fix it, we could save it. God, we declare before you today, we can't. We need you. Maybe you're here today and simply your clothes. They've gone, got a little stained and messed up. Jesus has a fresh set for you. And he wants you to be clothed in his righteousness. He wants to exchange your sin for his love. Jesus, right now we believe you're doing work right among us as a congregation. Father, we pray that you would be with each person today as they connect with you. Lord, would you do a new work? Would you do a new thing in this congregation today? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.